Hello and welcome to Man on a Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about Eden Hazard's legacy at Chelsea and the Premier League in, in a wider sense, now that he's moved to Real Madrid. The fundamental underlying question is, is Eden Hazard a world-class player? Now, Eden Hazard, at the height of his form, is a wonderful player to watch. I mean, it's the pace, it's the power, it's the skill, the close control, the, the finishing. You know, I, having watched him enough times, both you know, live and at the pub, in, at home, it's undeniable the extent of his talent. You know, you, whenever you face Eden Hazard, you don't relax whenever he has the ball. That's not necessarily to mean that every single... I wouldn't call him a Tottenham killer. I've seen him do some fantastic things against us. I've seen him have some fairly anonymous performances against us. So to begin with, you really need to sort of constitute what makes a world-class player. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all response. But I think there's some key sort of integers. You know, really, you're looking at an element of longevity, a consistency. In other words, there are plenty of players who have just out of nowhere had a wonder season. You can sort of talk about, let's say, Kevin, Kevin Phillips's um, golden boot season. You know, 36 starts, 30 goals. Yeah, he was still a really good striker, you know, probably a little bit above league average, but he never approached that level. So for that season, yeah, you could probably say he was a world-class player, but he didn't do much in the very limited England caps he got. The rest of his career, he was good, but he was never... You know, a consistently world-class player. And, you know, the next bit is, is excellence. Really, to my mind, there has to be a clear differentiation. You know, a step up that basically makes it clear that there, you have good players, solid pros. You know, people that get you, you know, five to six to seven goals a season as an attacking midfielder. People that, you know, they will get maybe 10 or 15 England caps. Or they play for you know, countries that don't really qualify for the major tournament. There is that level of player, you know. Squad players at you know top six starters, you know between sort of ninth to fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth. There has to be a point where you can say, you know, clearly show that you are a step above that. You know, it's a bit like if you had to compare, you know, Darren Bent with Harry Kane. Yes, there was some season where Darren Bent scored similar sort of goal tallies to Harry Kane. But it's just a massive difference. Harry Kane gets left foot, right foot, headers, inside the box, outside the box. He's a great crosser. He's good at you know, holding the ball up. He's good at making runs. Darren Bent, on the other hand, was a sort of volume goal scorer. You know, he needed a relatively straightforward, very simple you know, game plan. And if you, you know, gave him that level of service, at the Premier League at least, he was pretty good. You know, he, had a, you know, he had a sort of three, four year period. But at international level, and you know, he never really broke into a team that was ever going to compete in the sort of top, top seven, top eight, top six. And I think that's a sort of a good, you know, example of where there's a differentiation. I mean, you need an element of the next bit will be a sort of element of success at club level, international level, you know, continental level in Europe, you know, trophies, individual awards. And really then there's the more sort of nebulous bits. It's the, you know, whether you've changed the way the game is played. In other words, if you're a right-back, you might have changed the way how people view right-backs in terms of the way how they get forward. 
you know, you might have pushed the boundaries of the game, in much in the way that, you know, a Messi did, a Ronaldo did, to an extent, what sort of Gareth Bale did, where you basically start out as a, as a left-back, you know, turn into a marauding winger, and by the end of it, into this kind of, you know, hybrid striker, winger, that kind of scenario. You know, but, and really, there's also a kind of, I guess, what's the best way of putting it? There's the element of the intangibles, the, the performing best, the most critical moments, the important games. And really, it's the idea that you create an overarching narrative of your kind of career. You know, in a way, it's sort of like Madonna, Maradona even, not Madonna. <laughs> that kind of, you know, situation where, you know, in terms of, you know, how he, you know, almost in the late 80s and to an extent the early 90s, was able to almost will Napoli and Argentina to, to more success than what they should have got on paper in terms of the teams that, that, that he was a part of. And so really with, with Eden Hazard, there isn't, you know, there isn't a massive consistency. I don't know whether he's got to that level of excellence that you could put, you know, if you're looking at your, your message, your Ronaldo's. Yeah, and he's had success, relative success, at international club level. And I wouldn't say that he's, you know, changed the way the game is played or pushed the boundaries. I think that's where, you know, he's very good at what he does. In But he is, you know, he's sort of maybe like an inverted winger. You know, he, he cuts in, but at no point has he ever really looked comfortable or looked like he ever wanted to, you know play as a forward. A couple of times he's been stuck up front on his own and that was kind of, you know, Mourinho and, you know, Conte especially. But, and also there's, you know, his European record isn't, you know, nothing really to write home about. I think it's something like 52 games, 11 goals. It's, sorry, 53 games, 11 goals. It's, and a lot of that, you know, some of that has been played in the Europa League, not the Champions League. He's only ever got once to the semi-final and you know, Mourinho against when he when they played Atletico Madrid was somewhat critical, and he didn't particularly have a, a great game, didn't influence it in that regards. So I think it then really moves on to the next element of it is in that sense of if we're if we're not a hundred percent sure at this point whether we can classify him as a world class player based on his, you know, on his current record. What extent then does fame play? Because he is famous, you know, in the sense that last season, Real Madrid didn't make any major moves. They didn't buy any Galacticos. You know, they lost Cristiano Ronaldo, and I think the idea was is that you know they were almost in some ways hoping that Gareth Bale would step up or Danny Ceballos or Isco. They were. Th- there was there was enough sense that they had enough talent that if those players or you know Marcus a lot you know if those sort of players kicked on to the next level that they wouldn't necessarily need to buy a frontline player and it hasn't really worked they've had a fairly ordinary season they got absolutely annihilated by Ajax at home in the Champions League they finished well past you know they were left in left for dead. <laughs> in the race for La Liga, and the last three months of the season was simply playing out the string, which is just what Real Madrid fans and the hierarchy do not expect. And so buying Eden Hazard is a first step. I mean, he's got far more of a... 
presence, you know, in terms of social media, in terms of just knowledge that the average, you know, sports fan would have across the world than Ada Militao or Luka Jovic. And I think where fame originally begins is the sense that he was basically the start of a new beginning, you know, for Chelsea. You know, they had won the Champions League, but it was very much a last hurrah for the old guard. You know, Ashley Cole, Frank Lampard, Czech, Terry, Drogba, they were ageing, they had finished sixth, and as much as it is a fantastic achievement, it was very much backs to the wall. There was lots of defending, they were able to hit teams on the break, and it was battling. It was not the dominant, free-flowing football that you got at the sort of start of the Mourinho years when Abramovich replaced Ranieri. You know, it, I've always got this thought in my mind that Roman Abramovich, as much as he loves beating Bayern Munich at their home stadium in this sort of dramatic final, will always look back on Moscow. Because that would have been, I think, the culmination of everything that he would have ever wanted out of football and owning Chelsea. You know, it was a homecoming of sorts. You know, it would have been John Terry smashing the winning penalty home. It would have vindicated his decision, you know, to get rid of Mourinho. All of those bits and pieces. You know, the football they would have played to get there. The team was a better team, was a more fast-flowing, it was a younger, it was just better in that regards. Much in the same way if it's comparable to an extent with you know, Tottenham's recent Champions League run and Arsenal's Champions League run. In other words, they weren't the best teams of that kind of mini-era, but they were the ones that almost had the doggedness. That were, you know, in other words, it wasn't always pretty. You know, Tottenham's you know, beating you know, Man City and Ajax were, were sort of come from behind, backs of the walls affair, you know, where it was literally every last man, you know, it it had an element of sort of Rourke's drift to it. Even with Arsenal, it wasn't, you know, the Invincibles, you know, running roughshod over Europe. It was lots of very tight, good defensive displays and getting, you know, goals on the break. And so for Chelsea fans, for what is specific to Chelsea fans and their sort of love and the fame element with Eden Hazard is there was an element of he was one of their own. He They saw him develop as a you know, very promising young player. They spent £32 million. Pounds. That's a hefty amount of money back in 2012. And also the state of the Premier League when he joined. There was generally a... It was kind of a... It, it was a sort of epoch era it was basically you had the you had several teams that were declining you have manchester united was the sort of basically the fag end of the you know ferguson era you you had liverpool rebuilding they had you know, elements of you know they were about to face some you know, very stressful dark financial times with gillette and hicks running out of money and the court battles gerard was aging you know, all of the golden generation of you know, English players at this point that we had in sort of 2004, 2006 were, were ageing. You know, Arsenal hadn't won trophies for several years. You know, Manchester City were rising, they had Yaya Torre, but you even had Spurs running up, but at no point were, were any of those players massively famous. I mean, you had Rooney, you had 
you know, Robin Van Persie, you had, you know, Yaya Torres, but it they weren't comparable to, you know, the success that England English teams had had maybe four or five years earlier in the Champions League, where it felt like you know, every single year there was an all-English semi-final. And to an extent, you know, Eden Hazard really filled that void until really, until the sort of rise of Kane, Salah, Deli Alli, you know, return of Paul Pogba, De Bruyne, Aguero, Virgil van Dijk, those sort of players that came through in, you know, sort of three or four years afterwards. So for a long period of time, you know, Eden Hazard had an outsized role in the Premier League. And there's a, there's an element, it's almost an element of sort of Cantona there, in that he was you're almost like a, a, a non-threatening player. In other words, I think the way how we would have perceived Eden Hazard had he been French would have been slightly different. The Belgian team that, you know, when he first moved here, Belgium were on the up, but they hadn't qualified for several years. It was not, they were not a team that you thought were going to be threatening England anytime soon. Much in the same way that a lot of Cantonars, you know, popularity in this country came from not playing international football. Cantona was never going to ever hurt you in a major tournament. He wasn't going to be there. He wasn't selected by France. And there was a sort of, and to, you know, and there was a sense, maybe the first couple of years, with that with Eden Hazard. In other words, you know, he was, you know, because he was so promising, because so much money had been put into him, and, you know, here was the chance he could have moved to a big French team. He could have moved to Italy. He could have moved to Spain. The fact that he chose to move to London and to Chelsea was a big sort of element. So it's understandable to see really why Chelsea fans have this sort of deep adoration. I mean, there's been a high managerial turnover. There's been a ter- high turnover of one-to-way players. You've had... Diego Costa, Thibaut Courtois, Alvaro Morata. All of these players have at some points had success for Chelsea, but none of them, you know, it was blatantly obvious they all wanted to be somewhere else. You know, Thibaut wanted to go back to Madrid so that he could be with his kids, and he loves Spain so much, the culture, and he wanted to be at a big club. Diego Costa, yeah. You can almost understand that he wanted maybe to go to, to England at one point. He wanted to, you know, get the pay rise that moving to the Premier League was. And he, you know, and I think he enjoyed playing in England in terms of the physicality of it and the pace of the football. But it was always a short-term move. There was always the chance that he could go back to Madrid at any point. And, you know, with Alvaro Morata, he never really... You know, settled in, never seemed to get to grips with it. He saw he had all of the tools potentially for to be a effective Premier League striker. You know, he scored enough headed goals. He showed enough pace. He showed enough upper body strength that he wasn't going to be sort of bullied out in the Premier League in a way that like a sort of similar player, like a Helder Postiga, who had a lot of skill but was never ever going to suit the Premier League in terms of his body strength, in terms of the way, how much time he needed, and his sort of lack of straight, straight line speed. And you've then had the sort of, as, the, as Hazard's career, Chelsea career has gone on, you've had the question mark over whether Abramovich is going to stay. He's taken that step back. He doesn't go to the games anymore. He doesn't live in this country anymore. It's, and you've also had a sort of dearth of, you know, there wasn't that many 
youth players coming through in the sort of until really the, the sort of up the latter stages of his Chelsea career, maybe this year. So whereby the previous sort of Chelsea teams had you had a, some players that were almost pre Abramovich. You know, you had Lampard, you know, Joe Cole to a slight extent. He was one of the first sort of Abramovich signings. But they were all you know, and you had John Terry. So all of these players have been sort of even checked to an even lesser extent. But all of them have been bought, you know, for not idiot amounts of money. But, you know, Lampard and Cole had come from Chelsea, come from West Ham, just down the road. It's and so there was that sense that the Chelsea fans had that kind of linked, that really kind of had that link and that specialness that you get when a team breaks through and they finally instead of you know the the first breakthrough had been in the late you know, nineties with the FA Cups, the League Cups, a couple of European trophies. But this Chelsea team were the one that broke through, that finally, you know, won in won the Premier League, were winning cups at the same time, were were competitive in Europe. And as the years went on, the players became it became harder to really establish a bond to them. I mean you, to an extent you had Cesar, Aspilicueta, but even he had come for quite a decent amount of money for a young player from Marseille. So he'd started out in Spain, had moved to Marseille, and then moved to Chelsea. And really, all you have was you know Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who's finally now made that breakthrough, although he keeps getting these sort of niggling injuries. You then had Callum Hudson-Odoi. But that was a lot of years where that those sort of players weren't breaking through. And then you also had the, the angst from, you lost De Bruyne, you lost Salah, all these people who had been at Chelsea. But they just hadn't been able to, you know, push them through. They hadn't been able to, you know, integrate them into the first team. And now look at them; they were all playing brilliantly well for City and for Liverpool. And how frustrating it was to think if we'd had those players, look where we'd be now. So as a result, Chelsea he was almost like the one constant. You know, he was. You're always seemingly there, even and so as a result, Chelsea fans were willing to sort of overlook the constant flirting with Real Madrid and PSG and the unending things of will I sign a contract, will I not sign a contract. In the end, I think people, a lot of Chelsea fans, they understood his motives for leaving by the end. That he was going to the next level. He'd as part of him, they'd always wanted to go to Real Madrid. So in the end where a lot of the angst and anger that Chelsea fans had, it was far easier to effectively blame Sarri, Conte, Mourinho. They were more convenient targets. You know, basically Eden Hazard never really got much blame attached for relative underperformance. And they certainly weren't, you know, the elephant in the room, they certainly weren't going to blame Roman Abramovich for the bad decision-making, for the short-sightedness, because you really can't. Because without Roman Abramovich, where would Chelsea be? And on a sort of almost a wider sense, is that Eden Hazard's performances and his goals, his runs, his skill really marked a multitude of short term win sins. Really, you know, sort of the worst bits of sort of Conte's second season where, you know, when they played Man City away and just stuck. Everyone behind the ball stuck. Eden Hazard twenty yards in front of everybody else, and hoped for the best, and took you know a narrow defeat 
without ever stepping up and trying to get an equaliser, or any sense that they were trying to match Man City on in, even in the middle of the park. And then the worst bits of Sari ball, the slowness of the games, the you know the repetitive passes. Often watching Chelsea, you know, I, I have several friends who are Chelsea season ticket holders, and they found watching Chelsea hard work last season, and only these big nets of genius from Eden Hazard really made some of these games worthwhile. Which really brings on to sort of a, a, a wider question of. Why does Eden Hazard's managers seem to fail to prosper in any long-term sense, either Chelsea or Belgium? I mean, with Belgium, you could say maybe the heightened expectations because of this, you know, golden generation. But, you know, Mark Vilmots didn't do a particularly great job and, you know, fell out with the players and never really grabbed a hold of the, the job or, or any got any kind of sense of control. You can understand entirely why the Belgium FA signed him. It's one of those things, when you get a group of great players who've all sort of come up through the, the, the you know, various youth teams, most of them were playing in the Premier League, there was a sense that, and yet Bill Motts had been the, um, he'd been a great player himself, he'd been the assistant under the previous manager, I suppose their their ideal scenario would be that he would bring all the players together, get them playing some lovely football, and that just by the sheer talent, and that he'd be almost like a figurehead, and that all he'd have to do is just get the players into a shape, and their talent would simply overwhelm. And it never really happened. They never, you know, he just wasn't tactically aware enough to create the game plans or to make the decisions of, or which world-class attacking midfielder. You can't simply put them all into the team and just hope for the best. In other words, he wasn't quite as bad as Diego Maradona, but it was of a type. It was, well, if I put all these world-class players there, hopefully that should do the job. I mean, Roberto Martinez, is, and I think the, the, their point of moving on to Martinez was, well, Martinez is managing the Premier League. He would have faced these players a lot of the time, and he would produce more of a tactical game plan. In other words, he would get he'd have all the same players but would get them into a coherent strategy, a style of playing, and their, their talent would then show. And although you'd have to say that they've done better, they still have they flattered to deceive, really. I mean if you take the you know J- Japan game when they were 2-0 down and it was a great comeback, but it was still how did you ever get into a position where you were ever 2-0 down to a relatively limited, but at the same time, plucky you know, Japan team. And also with you know, Chelsea managers. I mean, they all of them have had you know, uh, the main managers that he's had. So really, you're looking at Mourinho, Conte, Sarri, and to a tiny little bit of an extent, Rafa Benitez. They've all won things. They've all had success, but it was never long-term. They never seemed to have a, they had an inability to craft a functioning system around around Eden Hazard, because Eden Hazard is a limited, narrow role in terms of you know the the personnel and formation. He's not a ten. He's not a nine. You know, he just does what Eden Hazard does, and you know there's he's not going to track back. He's not going to keep a consistent 
you know, he's not going to play in a consistent part of the park if you're going to get the best out of him. And when you know it does work, you can win ch- championships, but it always there always seem to be a hangover. There always seem to be an sort of existential struggle to find a role and personnel and formations and players that you know were able to maintain it. In other words, you know, Antonio Conte came up with you know the the idea of the back three, implemented it, and it worked for as long as it worked, which was really thirty games, and it worked so well. A romp to the title, much in the same way that you know Jose Mourinho's tactics in his second season of his second spell was when he you know you had Matic, you had Fabregas, Diego Costa up front, and then the you know Eden Hazard and a couple of other you know attacking players, you know Williams and and how they were able to, but that then fell in in the second season. It's and even really with. Sorry, Ball, is that Eden has had a great start to the season, but slowly but surely faded away for you know, much of, sort of midwinter and had a, a, a decent spell in spring. And eventually the numbers kind of match what he usually outputted, but he, you know, there was never a sense that Sorry ever looked likely to, to push Eden Hazard onto the next level or that his formation or his style of play was going to get the best out of Eden Hazard. So we've we've kind of discussed, you know, where Hazard's sort of role at Chelsea and to an extent his legacy. So I think now it's sort of cogent to really look at how that plays into the wider sense of the Premier League and the era that he played in. And it's really an era of stratification. And really that just requires big clubs, famous players and simple narratives and storylines. Because really, the stratification is underwritten by internationalism as a financial imperative. In other words, we need to keep selling the foreign TV rights, we need to keep you know, upping the amount of games we televise in this country to keep the money in. And what you need is, you need strong, great, top five, six teams to keep the narrative going, to keep the strength in the Champions League going, which is then what is going to allow you to market yourself as the best league in the world with the most famous players. And it, it becomes almost like a vicious cycle, and which is why the what you would have thought would be, oh, wouldn't it be awful if Leicester then won the title, is that that fitted perfectly into it. It was, you know, it's almost like a, you know, a left-field plot twist. And that because it was such a simple narrative and because it was something that you know, would appeal to people and people would understand the emotion of it all across the world. And that helps, you know, the Premier League. You know, and I mean I was reading an interesting article where it was almost describing that and stating that more modern fans are more predisposed now to watch teams and players. You know, even if it's a situation where you're just watching a bunch of world club, you know, in other words, your Man City's absolutely battering some mid-table club with you know, 65, 70, 70% of possession and running rings around them and being 4-0 up after 60 minutes. But, so in other words, they're more interested in watching the great players than they are if you had a situation where, say, actually, alternatively, you can watch 
two very good Italian teams who are well who are more competitive, who are well matched, play a pretty good game where it's back and forth, but there's not quite that same level of star players. In other words, if you were to put that to the modern fan, the modern fan always goes for the stars. And that's really, in effect, what we've done with Eden Hazard. You know, as a, you know, in terms of the media, that's the print, online and television, and, you know, British football fans on the whole, and to an extent, international Premier League fans. They've, the point is, ergo, we needed Hazard to be world class. And as he was famous playing for a big club, and there was a narrative that meant we positioned him as world class. We, you know, the narrative ignored all of his shortcomings, the, the lack of consistency, the fact he's never scored more than 16 Premier League goals in a season, that his record in the FA Cup is okay, his record in the League Cup is a bit better, but it's still 25 games, 8 goals, his European record isn't much to write home about. Even if you look into his sort of international record, the teams that he scored against, they tend to be the sort of... You, you wouldn't quite go as far as, say, a flat-track bully, because he did play really well in the World Cup, but without there ever being that signature game. You know, he was there or thereabouts during the Japan game, but you could give just as much credit to Marion Fellaini for coming on and, you know having playing a, a role in, you know, terrifying the Japanese defence and putting and you know and disrupting, you know, the way how Japan were defending. Yeah. I think what it comes down to is if you look at that semi final, France were a decent outfit. You know, they, they were well drilled, they had a style of play, they had good you know, good and world class players. But really all they did in that semi-final was nick a goal, sit back and effectively invite Belgium to beat them. And it never really, you know, that was a moment when you needed your captain and your best world-class player in Eden Hazard to step up. And, you know, Maradona it into extra time or penalties and to win and to get them into that final where they would have been, you know, presumptive favourites over both Croatia and England. They'd already beaten England once in the tournament, and that didn't happen. And then you go to the, the Euros, when you know, they had a fantastic opportunity to get to the final. They were playing Wales. Now, if there was any squad, foreign squad, playing a, a, a British team that should have known exactly what they were going to come up against, it was Belgium. The matchups were there. You see these players every week. You played against teams domestically that do the same sort of things that Wales do and they completely fell apart I mean it was a you know they didn't get close to, to Wales and they got well beaten in that regards and I suppose this is where I suppose Eden Hazard is probably one of the first representatives of what you would call a a social media player. A player from the social media generation. And I suppose you could say that of Pogba and there's probably a handful of others. But those are the two that I think exemplify it best. In the sense that as, young, as, as this generation grows up 
with you know the internet with social media it creates where the i suppose the overarching the most important bit is your personal journey and your personal narrative and the way how you present yourself to the world through that narrative and so if you take let's say an example is declan rice is that when declan rice he was released by chelsea when he was a kid went to a couple of other places for trials and then got taken on by West Ham. And he was a defender and he was yeah, relatively talented, but there was nothing that you know made him stand out more than any other, you know, under 19, under 21, under 23 player. You no, know, he was strong in a tackle, you know, he had a you know, decent amount of pace but not wasn't massively quick. You know, he was a good tackler. He was just solid. There was a sense that you know he might you know break into the first team, but there was no guarantees that he was going to be a star. And he was really you know on the verge of you know you might take a loan deal to Colchester or you might take a loan deal to a League One club, and if it goes really well, that might have been it. You might have then just moved on at the end of the season when your contract runs out. You know it what he was no sure thing. And then. You know, he had the opportunity to get in the first team. He then moves into midfield, and just suddenly things happen very quickly. But in that kind of period of time before he made that, you know, before he really made the big jump into the first team, you know, he has Irish heritage, and decided that you know, and was given the opportunity by the Republic of Ireland to play you know youth football for the Republic of Ireland, and for, and he wouldn't have been on England's radar at any point at this stage. So of course the kid's gonna you know take an opportunity to play international football you know at youth level with the potentiality that you know if you know that would be a way of improving his game at a higher level and the potentiality of eventually then getting through and then you know qualifying and then being one they pick for Ireland and obviously as his you know makes his breakthrough into the first team Republic of Ireland immediately then bring him into the squad happy days you know plays two or three times in friendlies he's achieved to get to that stage no one was expecting him to get that far you know he's really worked at it he's any number of players when they get released the first time fall off the face of the earth and never get back into professional football on any level but then he then kicked on and once he started to kick on and there was the i suppose the element of the career aspects the commercial aspects of actually you could be a really world class defender, you could be a world class central mid, you know, you are not you have now moved beyond just becoming a solid player for West Ham and as West Ham, you know, move on and you know kick on and try and, you know, with their new stadium, with the money that's coming in from that and with the money that, you know, the Sullivan and Gold are putting in, potentially could be, you know, trying to solidify themselves as a top ten, top eight, possibly getting into Europe. It's now you have a you know you're on the fast track to a top six club and playing Champions League every week, and so this is how much you know social media you will get if you play play for the Republic of Ireland. You might there's no guarantee you're going to qualify for World Cups, European Championships. It is a small playing base that they are working off of, whereby England, more often than not, you qualify. More often than not, you are in the latter stages of the tournament. You could then be a part of an England team that is you know, winning things, you know, especially with the jump that Gareth Southgate's made and the commitment to young players. So naturally, you can see, and this is someone who's you know born in Kingston, 
you can see where that dilemma kicked in. You know, where an agent, where all of the sort of thought process would have been, your career will, you know, you can kick on and you can really achieve something in international football if you play for England. So while it is, there's an emotional side, the other side of it, the financial and the career, all of it was saying go for England and you can understand in that sense why he took it on. And that's much in the same way that you get with with Eden Hazard when you know when he originally I mean there was I remember at the time he was linked with lots of different teams and there was a sense that you know Tottenham finished fourth, Chelsea finished sixth, and whoever got that Champions League spot there was a chance that he'd go to that team or you know a Champions League team somewhere else, either in France, Italy, possibly even Spain. And obviously Chelsea win, Champions of Europe in the Champions League, and that's where he went. It wasn't ever a sense that Ian Hazard would have definitely gone to Chelsea, even had they lost the penalty shootout and been dumped into the Europa League. I think he'd have gone somewhere else. And so as a result... It was always a careerist step. And in a way, it was part of his own personal individual journey. And this is where the I think some of the difficulty that he had with you know deciding whether to go or whether to stay. Had he gone to Tottenham, let's say, it would have been just blatantly obvious what he would have done. He had stayed there for two or three years at, you know, to get experience with the Premier League, to improve himself as a player, and to show him at his best. And by year two, or possibly year three, if he'd started a bit slowly, it would have been come down to, I want to be in the Champions League. If you can give me Champions League football, I will stay one more year. If you finish fifth, and you're in the Europa League, I'm off. That would have been it. It would have been a strict... He would have known that they weren't going to compete for the title at that point. They weren't going to compete at the upper echelons of European football. He'd have then moved somewhere, you know, Man City, PSG, Bayern, one of the Spanish teams. That would have been the career progression, and that would have been relatively straightforward. Now, with Chelsea, the issue was is that there was always that possibility because they could win leagues, because they could win cups, because they had a European pedigree that... Actually, Chelsea could be that team that would put him into the stratosphere. And if that was the case, he'd be more than happy to stay. But if they weren't, he's off ski. It was going to be Paris Saint-Germain or it was going to be Real Madrid. Whichever team that he thought was going to take him to that next level. And yeah, Real Madrid did have a an appeal to him from an emotional level. But also from his own personal narrative. It's the elephant in the room. You know, his his loyalty was what was a perceived loyalty, as a function of his overarching you know personal narrative. He would stay if it suited his narrative and his story that he was. Oh, I signed for Chelsea when I was a young kid, you know, twenty one, twenty two, and now I spent these years, and we've now reached the the pinnacle. We've won the Champions League. Or it was going to be, I did my best at Chelsea and we you know, just fell short, won a couple of Europa Leagues and now I'm going to Real Madrid where it's the absolute pinnacle for any player. As a kid I dreamed of it. It's that principle, much in the same way that Paul Pogba. 
if you take Paul Pogba, and I, I like Paul Pogba, I think on his day he can be a fantastic player. And I think that there's, it's a generational gap in terms of how we perceive, how we look at him. And there's possibly a, a racial element as well tucked into it on a maybe more subconscious level. But if we're going to take the narrative at absolute face value, his story doesn't really make sense. What, I suppose the way how he would tell it, how the marketing side of it would be that you know he played at Le Havre and was then spotted by United, went to United, did brilliantly well in the youth setup, and was going to be the next great thing for Manchester United. And you know, Ferguson didn't really show him, you know, wasn't interested, was more interested in keeping, you know, winning one more trophy and the short-termism. And so eventually he lets his contract run down and goes to Juventus and has all this amazing success and then decides that he wants to come back because he has unfinished business at Manchester United. The point is, is that if he was that committed to Manchester United in the beginning, he would have just stayed. He would have just performed so well in the reserves eventually. And it may have you know, taken an extra year. He would have eventually broken into the first team and would have been the absolute staple of the, the post-Ferguson years. But the point was is that he wasn't interested in waiting around. And his point is perfectly fair. He was too good to be sitting in the Manchester United reserves at that point and going to Juventus and immediately basically breaking into their first team and winning a load of Serie A's, you know, Italian Cups, Italian Super Cups, and getting to the Champions League final. There's nothing wrong with that. But you then cannot also then say, well, actually, but I had you know, this burning desire to go back to you know, Manchester United and prove myself. It's a little bit self-serving. Much then he turns up at United, has a couple of you know, two, three seasons where he's done okay, but never, you know, been the dominant leadership pro. You know, there's been managerial fallouts. He's lost the captaincy, and eventually now, you know, just you know, you've had you know return of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. What has he done? Actually, you know what, lads, I'm off ski. I've I've done what I want to do, and now I want to go to Real Madrid. It's that kind of thing. In other words, there's. N his loyalty is to his narrative, and Manchester United only fit into his narrative in terms of you know, his youth development and his return and his the way how that return had an impact on Manchester United in terms of you know the social media bit, so the money side of it for United and for you know his own prominence. In other words, you know moving to Juventus was you know, because they're the biggest club in Italy and they have a huge. It's that kind of of differentiation which. The generation of Lampard and Terry, that generation never had that. There was, you know, and I'll probably discuss, I'll discuss this in more sort of detailed depth when I'm sort of talking about Matthew Letizia a little bit later on in the podcast. It's that kind of, you know, sort of principle that it's far more about the individual and how you, in other words, it's a little bit like the sort of almost the inverse of, you know, JFK's, you know, Ask not what you can do for your country, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. In other words, it is what can Manchester United do for my personal journey, which is really what Paul Pogba has done. And once Manchester United do not make the you know his narrative work because they are just they are not qualifying for the Champions League, and they are not 
in a position to, you know, challenge for the league, challenge Man City. In other words, he's not going to stick around and fight it out. There's a, you know, he can move to Real Madrid, where it's a lot easier, where you're guaranteed to finish in the top four. There is enormous pressure, and this is what Eden Hazard will find at Real Madrid, and what Paul Pogba does if he moves, but there's almost safety in numbers. There's the element of the, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. In other words, he'd be, they'd always be surrounded by other world-class players. In other words, neither Hazard nor Pogba has ever really taken on the absolute full responsibility of being the lead and dragging these outfits single-handedly in a way that a Terry, a Lampard does. It's far more, as long as I need to put up my numbers and if everybody else does, happy days, if not. And it's... In other words, there's a lack of institutional loyalty. And it's fascinating that a lot of the, the clubs that have been unsuccessful are now desperately trying to build some of it back. So in other words, Arsenal bringing back Freddie Lundberg, you know, Robert Perez, you know, Chelsea bringing back you know, Makaleli, Czech, Lampard. Manchester United bringing back Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's attempts to recreate the, the loyalty and the commitment of the Manchester United team of the 90s today. In other words, I suppose you know, your Pogba's and your Hazard's aren't, won't have that kind of deep relationship. In other words, they both love Chelsea and they both love Manchester United, but not in the same way that Lampard and Terry do. And I think it's it's interesting that in the way how Hazard's sort of fame goes is that both Real Madrid that there's sort of startling similarities in the way how Madrid and Chelsea have signed him. Both times they've been at, at both clubs were at a low ebb in terms of the playing staff. There've been managerial turnover and there've been you know poor league seasons. You know in comparison with the previous years where there had been great success. The sense that there is a, I suppose, there's, a, there's almost the, you get the feeling that if Real Madrid had wanted to sign Eden Hazard last year or the year before, Eden would have gone, would have dropped whatever he was doing and gone straight there. And there was a, almost an element of reluctance. Which, you know, In other words, there's, there's the, the hierarchy and you know, the president, there is a sense that they didn't quite see Eden Hazard as an out-and-out Galactico. There was question marks over whether you know, he was of that stature. And yet, now that things have gone a bit wrong, he make, you know, he's famous enough. He you know, obviously got the, you know, one of the best players at the last World Cup. He's had success. He's name-brand recognisable and... Signing him would also make you know, Zinedine Zidane happy. So there's an element of politics to it. They needed something, someone to parade in front of the the, multi, the thousands at you know the Bernabeu in the summer, that will basically start generate interest on a domestic and a global level. And Hazard fits that as a Glasgow esque signing, in which the other signings, so in other words, Ferland Mendy, uh, Ida Militao, and Luka Jovic don't quite. Feel that because they've come from you know, uh, Porto, Leon, and technically Benfica, but 
obviously spent the last year at Eintracht Frankfurt. So they're not big name players. They are good, talented, younger players, but they've only just really sort of broken into that kind of level. So I suppose I'm going to deem Eden Hazard's legacy at Chelsea unsatisfactory, and I can understand that there will people be you know listening to this screaming, especially if you're a Chelsea fan, that I am you know biased, that I'm wrong, and that I'm completely mental. But there's an element that his at first glance his record looks pretty good, much in the same way that. It's like, yeah, you know, I've been sort of slightly critical of Paul Pogba earlier, a bit earlier in this podcast. The point is, is that I understand from a personal level on that his moves all made sense and that his record as a football player is fabulous. You know, he's a runner-up in the Euros at home, narrowly lost in the final. He's a World Cup winner. He's a multiple Serie A winner. He has been to a Champions League final and lost to a fantastically gifted treble-winning Barcelona with Messi, Suarez and Neymar, one of the best forward lines of all time. He's gone to Manchester United. He's won an, a League Cup. He's won a European trophy. You know, as a career, he's won an awful lot. He's had success at international. He's had some success at club level. He's world famous. But again... It's almost a superficially good. In other words, you look behind the sort of under the hood, and there's a you know an element of limitation. The the Juventus team were fabulous when he rocked up, and continued being fabulous after, long after he left, and they weren't quite able to win the big one for all Juventus and Italian football fans as a whole is winning a Champions League for an Italian team, and most importantly for Juventus the best and biggest and most well-supported team in Italy. Much in the same way United, yes, he did you know, get them to second. Yes, he did get them into, you know, they won a couple of trophies, they got to a final, and they won in Europe. It's still, you know, it was the Europa League and his performances, yeah, at times he's been fabulous, but he's never had a, a full season where he has been brilliant. He's struggled to find a position. He's struggled to get the best. You know, he's not, he's not made it his team. And this is really what applies to an extent with Eden Hazard, what we were talking about with his international record. That yes, a semi-final and a quarter-final for Belgium and for you know qualifying for all of these tournaments is good, but it is not brilliant. And you know their defeats to Wales and France and you know, the general lack of you know, there's just not a signature game that I can say, you know, with Eden Hazard with regards to you know. That you would even have if you were looking, you know, at sort of other players. So Zidane has the '98 World Cup final. You know, Ronaldo has the 2006, has the '98. You know, world class players tend to have moments, even you know, at the level where you, you know, I, I would describe Harry Kane as world class now. I think he's proven it in Europe in terms of. And he's had his golden boot. Even though he wasn't perfectly at his absolute best in that World Cup, he was still when it when it was necessary when it mattered, he was scoring goals. You know, I mean, 
So you, you go through the list. So we've discussed the quarters, the semis in terms of the Euros. I mean, they didn't qualify. I mean, they didn't qualify for the Euro Nations, and they they should have done. But you know, they they gave away a few late goals to the Swiss and and left the back door open, and the Swiss came through. And let's face it, we all know that Belgium are a lot better team than Switzerland. Uh, your French double with Lille, and that's a fantastic achievement. But the difference is that it was, you know, the Lyon dynasty of the late 90s and 2000s was in decline, and it was pre the rise of PSG in Monaco under the sort of foreign ownership. You know, he's won an FA Cup, he's won a League Cup, he's won a couple of Europa Leagues, but his record in Europe, as we discussed, is patchy, especially in the Champions League. Yeah, there's not a signature Champions League game that I can think of off the top of my head where he has been brilliant. I mean, even, you know, you know, he missed the first Europa League final under Rafa the Gaffer. And in this, you know, run to the Europa League final, they beat uh, a tired Eintracht Frankfurt. But in the end, Frankfurt, you know, they, in the second leg, took them all the way to penalties. You had you know Slavia Prague where they looked at one point that Chelsea were going to ease away. Slavia Prague came back into it. You know none of these teams are brilliant. You know they were just solid Europa League outfits. Where by even with Arsenal, you could at least say that they had beaten Napoli and Valencia, who are both you know. Teams that you could imagine getting into out of the group stage of the Champions League, whereby the teams Chelsea were playing were still good, but you know Frankfurt by that time fell out of the top four in the Bundesliga. I mean, even if you take his finishes at Chelsea since he's been there, it's third, third, first, tenth, first, fifth, third, and if you take the third this year. You know, there's an almost, not, I wouldn't say an asterisk, but you had Arsenal who focused on the Europa League and completely fell out of contention, you know, and should have at least got three or four more points. You know, drawing at home to Brighton, they lost a couple of away games. And then you've got Tottenham who had massive injury problems, hadn't signed anyone, and had this, you know, magical run to the Champions League final. In other words, had, let's say, Raheem Sterling not been offside for VAR in the quarterfinal, you could imagine Tottenham over that last sort of couple of months performing better, getting three or four more points. Yeah, you, know, you would argue that you know, if had Arsenal not had the injury to Aaron Ramsey, you could imagine them getting two or three more points, and it could have easily been Chelsea fifth. The difference was two points. They still deserve to finish third. They were the one. They were the, the one team over those last few weeks who were able to get more results over the line. But at the same time, if you compare the teams Chelsea were facing in the Europa League with the teams that Arsenal were facing, Arsenal had the harder run to the final. I'd say. I suppose it comes to a key question of, well, has Eden Hazard, you know, appreciably improved? And I don't know, to be completely honest with you. I his numbers still look, you know. What I would say is that he's never scored more than sixteen goals in a Premier League season. He's done that twice, and both of those occasions were making thirty-six and thirty-seven appearances, respectively. 
You know, so his first season was nine goals after thirty. So basically, nine from thirty-four, fourteen from thirty-five, fourteen from thirty-eight. Both, in other words, he is very durable, and that's one of the achievements that I think is probably most underrated in terms of the sort of old school kicking and the fouls and his relatively short stature. You know, for him to keep, you know, never really having any major injuries. But then you've got this horrible 2015-16 season. 31 appearances, just the four goals. And... I'm going to compare him with, you know, sort of Matthew Letizier. Now, when I first started doing the sort of research for this, I I would have thought that... that I originally first thought that Letizier was a better player. But I assume that Eden Hazard's numbers would look better, and that I'd have to sort of contrast, you know, start contrasting the, you know, that Eden Hazard played in a more, an era with far more goals and you know, far and it's obviously the stratified the fact that he was playing for a really good team with a huge budget, huge in terms of wage bill, huge number of transfers, world class managers at every stage. That would be my argument, and yet. When you go over it, so basically Eden Hazard's got 245 appearances for Chelsea in the league, 85 goals. And when you go to Matthew Letizia's numbers in the Premier League, it's 270 appearances, 100 goals. And he's got 64 assists, whereby Eden Hazard from his... Uh, let me just get the numbers up... Got 54 assists. And I know that this is... You know, crude kind of back of a you know note back of a letter pad kind of maths, but that is still shocking. Is that you know obviously, and the element that the teams and the pressure that Letizia was under, you know that was a team that often struggled, often needed late comebacks in the back end of the season under pressure, you know to get the keep them into the in the Premier League. They were playing at the Dell. It was fifteen, sixteen thousand seats. Even then, that was a small stadium. There wasn't, there was no room. It was, you know, very tight. Old, you know, both stands on the touchline were old. I've been there a few times. I used to love the ground, but there was no way that you could have made any kind of corporate money out of it. There was no way you could have redeveloped it in any meaningful sense of the way. And it did shock me that, and if if you look at. Eden Hazard's numbers in terms of all time. It's he's not in the top ten, he's not in the top twenty for, you know, goals and assists. You know, the sort of players that you can look this up on the Premier League website, they have the all time kind of stats for goals and assists. You know, there's lots of players around him that, you know, aren't fabulously brilliant. He's not in other words, if you just looked at the numbers, you wouldn't sit there and say that he has been a, you know, top ten player, you know, attacking player in Premier League history. There's an element of the the Monty Panesar quote, you know, that what Shane Warne said is that you know Shane Warne said that Monty Panesar, the England spinner for cricket, didn't you know didn't play fifty tests for England. He played the same tests fifty times over. And that's it. You know, there's a consistency to Eden Hazard. It's usually between fourteen to sixteen goals from you know thirty plus appearances. But there's been a couple of years where he's you know slipped under that. He had the terrible season when he scored four goals, and those 
you know, four goals, most of them were at the back end of the season, you know, and th- that's when the season had been lost. They finished 10th, they got knocked out of both cups without doing an awful lot. It was a horrible season. You know, he's still inconsistent. I describe him as sort of sparklingly inefficient. You know, th- it's hard to see whether any of the players around him have appreciably improved by his presence. He's a very much an individualist. But where you could say Matthew Letizia was an individualist in terms of spending his whole career at Southampton, he was a maverick individualist, but he took on a huge amount of responsibility. In other words, it was often, you know, the players around him weren't brilliant. You know, he wasn't given necessarily a free role. He was often having to play as you know a winger but a winger that had to score lots of goals because the you know there was always strikers there but they weren't brilliant strikers they weren't 20 goal a season players you know it was you know Neil Shipley's Ian Dowie's Ego Ostenstad you know there was a handful of decent players around him but they were solid players you know there was a couple of you know decent attacking players but they didn't stick around very long like Ile uh, Berkovic who had a you know, fairly underrated career, but a lot of the time for lots of years, it really was Mappelia having to take it on to keep Southampton in the Premier League. And, an, and that element was really underappreciated at the time. You know, there was, you know, for the ninth, for the vast bulk of his career, you know, obviously by the time he hit sort of 30, 31 and about 98, 99, things, that's when he started to, you know, go on his sort of, downslope and within sort of two or three years he was pretty much done but at the time you had Coventry who were doing similar things staying up against the odds and had done so for basically the best part of 30 years you had Wimbledon that got into the division one in the early to mid 80s and has stuck around for 15 20 years Southampton have been doing it again since the 70s there was I suppose at the time it just seemed natural that you had Premier League had teams like that who were just able to stick around year after year, you know, and obviously Coventry to let more of an extent than Wimbledon, they had their own way escapology, so it it under it basically you didn't see how brilliant it was until he had retired, and then once he retired, you know, within a couple of years, Southampton had been relegated and then went on an absolute tailspin and ended up in League One with all sorts of financial disasters. You've had Coventry, who've had all sorts of financial disasters with their new stadium and the awful ownership that they have with Zizou, the hedge fund. And you've had Wimbledon, who then ended up being, you know, getting relegated a couple of times and then moved to Milton Keynes. You know, the fact that Letizia stayed around long enough, you know, without him, you don't necessarily get St Mary's. Because if they had been relegated in the mid-90s, would there have been the same effort put to keeping them, to building them a new stadium? And it's a little bit of, you know, counterfactual history, but it has its elements. I mean, I see Hazard as more of a conformist individualist in other words he just does Eden Hazard uh, he sort of reminds me almost like he's like the, the equivalent a football equivalency of James Vince it's the sort of thrilling 35 but batting from four in other words he's not opening the batting he's not taking on the you know, responsibility of captaincy in other words if it works if it does brilliantly well fantastic he will score you lots of runs it will be beautiful to watch but if it doesn't happen it doesn't 
and there will be you know there's an element that a lot of Eden Hazard what he does is brilliant but it's never sometimes it isn't against the top teams and uh, the absolute critical moments and that's maybe a little bit harsh but you know you look at these finishes that they've had in comparison with the wages the resource the transfers the ownership and the managers that he's had in his career whereby Letizia wasn't ever you know a lot of the time wasn't appreciated by his managers you know Graham Souness Ian Bramford these people dropped him you know there was an element of you know being I suppose exasperated by his you know sometimes lack of effort in other words, there's the old famous story that, you know, he used to eat Burger King on you know, at a service station on the way to games. Or that he wouldn't do anything in five-a-side and then he would just pick up the ball, skin absolutely every single player, smash, smash it into the corner, effectively saying to the manager, you can't drop me. I don't have to do what everybody else on this squad does. I mean, he was a genius and his goals and the way how he played, no, he was more versatile. Yeah, he could play left wing, right wing. He could play as a, a you know, maybe an eight, a ten, a, a second striker. You know, the, he could score goals. You know, with his head, he could score goal. You know, he had forty nine penalties from fifty. The only time he's, he ever had a penalty save was Mark Crossley, who was a well known, brilliant penalty saver, who was the first person to ever save a penalty in the cup final in ninety one against Gary Lineker, who was well known again as a great penalty taker. It's I think it's imperative to note that whereby Matthew Letizia's legacy legacy is more nuanced. You know, it is far more that his legacy is institutional. Yes, he is adored and loved by all Southampton fans. He's a living legend there. But it's also in the sense that they're in St Mary's Stadium, that they... Yeah, that there's an, a desire for this team to be a Premier League team. That even when things went horribly wrong, when they were stuck in League One for a few seasons, there was an expectation that this team was a Premier League team. There are plenty of teams that, you know, like you know Coventry, like like Wimbledon, you know, that had been you know members of Division One in the seventies and eighties. But once you got to the Premier League and where the money came in, they dropped and they just were never able to get back. And the fact that they managed to spend so long in the Premier League was the real fundamental bedrock of how this team, they believed. And when the you know, ownership took over after all of the nightmares and where they had to sell you know, Bale, Walcott, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, and the fact that, you know, obviously Letitia had come through their youth system. There was something institutional within that club that allowed them to Phoenix like rise from the ashes and re-establish themselves as a great Premier League team, as a team that should be at least in mid table and that should hold their own and that should play great football. And that is where, you know, Letitia is, you know, a real is the underpinning of that and is the literal representation of that. That's, that is philosophy writ large in flesh and blood. Whereby, 
at the moment, Eden Hazard's legacy at Chelsea is at his zenith. In other words, Chelsea fans love him. You know, he's had this success. He's now you know, got this move to Real Madrid. He's going to be one of the biggest and most famous players you know, in the world. But I think future generations, when they look back on him, will sit there and look at his numbers and look at what he's achieved. And it will, they'll just sort of they wonder, like, why was he considered such this great player in comparison with, you know, all of the other players that play in a similar role to him? You know, I'll, I'll take... What I did to sort of... Um, was to... If you take the last 10 years, so in other words, 2019 back to 2009, who would you consider the 10 best attacking players in world football? But it's really, in reality, it's European football where... You know, the best players all reside. And would Eden Hazard get into the top 10? And it was... So basically, off, off the top of my head, I've come up with you know Messi, Ronaldo, Neymar, Frank Ribéry, Arjun Robben, Gareth Bale, Antoine Griezmann, Andres Iniesta, David Silva. And then, really, that's nine. And you basically... So Hazard's there or thereabouts for the 10th slot. You know, you could give it to Raheem Sterling or Coutinho, Pogba, De Bruyne, even Mesut Ozil to an extent. And and that's it. There are players who have done more, who have won you know, ch- multiple Champions Leagues. There are people that have had better international records, scored more goals. Bale is your classic example. You know, he's got a European record. You know, he's won three Champions Leagues. He's had a season, you know, where last season at Spurs, where he scored, you know, twenty plus goals, you know, thirty in all competitions. He's taken a Welsh team that hadn't qualified for a major tournament in fifty eight years, took them to a Euros as you know the leader, and took them to a quarter final, beating an Eden Hazard, Belgium, who were massive favourites coming into that game. You know. Even at Spurs, he had the the hat trick against Inter Milan away. You know the taxi from Mykon game at home against the European champions. There are just games in which he has just played an outsized role. The the Copa del Rey final against Barcelona, where he just took the entire you know Barca defence and midfield down the line, cut back and scored a wonder goal. All of these sort of moments, even sort of Robin and Ribery's spell at Bayern. Where they and you know taking, you know, with Robin they won a Champions League, and he's had some success at Real Madrid. He took a Dutch team, you know, to the World Cup final. You know, it's you know Griezmann's had his success. He's won a World Cup. Iniesta's won everything. You know David Silva's had success in the Premier League and at international level, and even Sterling's numbers. I mean Sterling's younger, but his numbers match up pretty well and. You know, there's an element of consistency. Now you could say that, you can, you know, and an element of improvement. You can see Raheem Sterling has got better as a player in comparison with when he was at Liverpool, where he was brilliant but was very raw. Whereby you don't necessarily see that with Hadid. He's always been, you know, round about the same sort of player. And I think even if you there sort of look into, would you, like, for example, if you compare and contrast him to Christian Eriksen, you know, basically... If you, Ericsson's not has got has got more assists but less goals. But I think you factor in so Eden Hazard's eighty five Premier League goals, but seventeen of them were penalties. And you know, 
Christian Eriksen hadn't scored a penalty for Tottenham. So that kind of evens out the numbers a bit. Yeah, he has a, still has a you know maybe 10, 15 more goals, but he's had an extra season of games to factor that in. And if you look at it with you know Christian Eriksen, there's been an improvement in his performances, in his goals, in the work rate. He is a more well-rounded player. He covers more ground. He is better defensively. You know, he sets up the play as well as scoring goals from set pieces and goals from open play, long distance goals, setting up lots of goals. He's a better, effectively a better all-round player. And I think the players that play alongside Christian Eriksen tend to do better than the players that are stuck around you know, Eden Hazard. And if you look at internationally, you know, you've got Denmark who hadn't qualified for several tournaments in a row. And you know, the first half of Christian Eriksen's international career, there was such a huge amount of pressure because he was the poster boy. He was the one that had gone to Ajax, he'd then gone to Spurs, been played in the Premier League. And his the numbers weren't so brilliant. But you know, he then almost you know, not quite single handedly, but you know, he scored 10, 11 goals in you know qualifying. He really took that team you know, grabbed it by the horns and dragged them to a World Cup. And, you know, in the finals, dragged them to a second round. They weren't the best team, you know, through 1 through 23. But, you know, without him, they would not have qualified for that tournament. And if you look at it, Christian Eriksen's gone to a Champions League final. And the Tottenham teams he's been in have been more consistent. They've consistently, you know, from, you know, getting, from finishing in the top six, they've then got into the top Four, the top three, they finished second. They got eighty six points, and you know there's been a continual improvement. Whereby with Hazard there is an element of inconsistency. To I mean they don't quite play the same role, but the point is is that Ericsson affects all sort of parts of the game. Whereby Eden Hazard is far more you know he's not a massive assist person. You know, he is a you know. A decent goal scorer, but he's not volume in the sense that you know Gareth Bale at his best can be, or you know Messi. You know, no point has you know has Eden Hazard you know affected the way you know a formation. You know, his managers have found him exasperating. He is very talented, but you know he can only really play the the Eden Hazard role. And I think it is sad that as a culture, as football fans, that we've managed to sort of, because of the rise of sort of the hype broadcaster, the Homer broadcaster, the idea that you know we are you know we all have to cheer on the Premier League teams, and that there's always this sort of underlying sense that you know the Premier League has to prove itself as the best league, that we've managed and that the you know, the importance of the top six teams and and the, the players outside of it, like you know your Wilfred Wilfred Zaha's that really and you know, your Wan Bissaka's they can't stay at Crystal Palace they have to go to a top six team the top six have to just continually be looking towards you know, the sunlit uplands is that we've missed you know the Letitia's genius and you know, just how you know. At the time, it was, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a personal choice situation. You know, there was an element of Matthew Letizia that was very content to live in Southampton where he was happy, where 
you know, there wasn't the same pressure on him to you know, not drink, not to eat Burger King, to keep, you know, get in the absolute best shape, which would have happened had he gone to Spurs or Manchester United. And as a result of staying at Southampton, that did, you know, really curtail any hopes of being, you know, a major player at international level. He had seven caps, but they were over five years. They were just one game at a time. He was never really played in the right position. You know, he was always, you know, in other words, they dumped him in there and said, if you can do, you know, if you can match what you did at Southampton, you'll stay in the team. But if you don't at that, you know, from minute one, we will drop you and, you know, move on from you. So it was never really fair, whereby Hazard has already had, you know, 100 caps at Belgium level. You know, he's never been under the same kind of, you know, existential pressure that Letizia have with his managers, you know, with international football. And so there is an element of unsatisfactoriness with you know, Matthew Letizia's legacy. There is an element of what if, but... His legacy is an institutional one which will last, I think, longer than Eden Hazard's legacy. Even if he does go to Real Madrid and does brilliantly well, because Real Madrid teams tend to do brilliantly well anyway. You know, if they hadn't signed Eden Hazard with that 80, 90, 100 million euros, they would have bought somebody else who would have done the same thing. We've established that you know there are other attacking midfielders out there that can do you know similar things to Eden Hazard, and some of them do it better. You know, Messi is a far more effective football player. He's a far more efficient player. He can really score goals, you know, as and when, at, almost at will. <laughs> and so, really, to to finish this off, where do we put Eden Hazard in terms of? historically, his legacy within Premier League history, assuming that he never comes back. I'd say that if you're going to say top 10 sort of attacking players, he's behind Letizia. I think he's behind Eric Cantona massively in terms of you know, what Eric Cantona did and what he did year after year after year and the the importance of, of him in terms of being, you know, establishing Manchester United, not just as winners, but as serial winners. You know, you've got your Burkamps, your Thierry Henrys, your Wayne Rooney's, your Zolas, even your sort of Giggs and Beckham. I mean, he's hazarded above your David Ginola's, I would say. But he's, again, he's right on the edge of the top ten. And you get the feeling that you're, you know, a Sterling, you know, De Bruyne, even, you know, a Pogba or even a Coutinho, if Coutinho comes back to the Premier League, they could all knock him out, I think, as the years go on. Because there is, you know, obviously, if Christian Eriksen stays in the Premier League for a couple of years, I think his numbers will then go past Eden Hazard's. There's... I think he is a good player. I think he is always going to be just at sort of just on the outskirts of a top ten. There's always there's just that stratus of world-class players and he's nearly there but he never quite gets there and I suppose what is now so fascinating about his move to Real Madrid and really the last you know basically last five six seven years of his career is whether at domestic level with Real Madrid in terms of Champions League in terms of winning La Liga and competing with Barcelona or whether he can at the next Euros or the next World Cup, both of which those tournaments might be his last as a frontline player, 
is whether he can ever break through that glass ceiling and whether he can take on the, the leadership quotient and whether he can actually become a truly world-class player. Thank you for listening.